0: Well, I grew up in the 90s, uh, so I remember a time when MTV used to actually play music videos. And, you know, some mornings as I would be getting ready for school, as I ate breakfast, I'd, you know, watch MTV, watch the music videos that that aired on the television. And, you know, most of them are uh, a blur, lost in time, a bunch of one-hit wonders. Uh, But every now and then there were videos that kind of lodged in my brain, probably because they were popular and they played them so regularly. Uh, but even decades later, I can still remember them very vividly. Right? I remember that very you know, arid desert area of California Love by Tupac and Dr. Dre. I remember the heart-rending vocals of TLC's Waterfalls. Weezer's Buddy Holly, which was filmed to, to in the style of that classic sitcom, Happy Days. But I also distinctly remember watching the video for the song, it's not as popular of a song, but a song called Hole in My Soul by Aerosmith. And I remember as a kid I felt a connection to it. When the song was released I was 16 years old, about 16, so it was really prime time for me as uh, an adolescent to resonate with a song that deals with the ups and downs of, of finding love. And the video, if you haven't seen it, follows a a kid who's who's pretty nerdy. He's picked on at school. Kids, you know, throw paper at him, uh, mock him for knowing the answers at class, and it's evident that he is an outsider. There's a scene where, you know, he's at a party with all the popular kids and everybody else has a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a significant other that they're spending time with, and he's just kind of sitting there on the couch looking dejected and hopeless, alone. So the video narrates him going to his school's lab late at night, and he genetically engineers clones uh, who he views to be the perfect woman. Finally, he has someone to love. And so the next scene, they're walking together hand in hand until she catches the eye of a much more popular kid at a party and leaves him. He tries again, cloning another woman, this time having the girl stolen by the quarterback of the high school football team. Now, this video resonated with me on a few levels. When when I first viewed it, I remember being captivated by the story of a kid who couldn't fit in, who desperately tried to find his identity in the embrace of a significant other. But over the next few years, as I matured and as my faith continued to deepen, I saw this video as a glimpse, almost a, a, a microcosm into what makes us tick as people. The song is titled Hole in My Soul, and what that young man is looking for is love. I I don't think you have to just be a teenager with raging hormones to sense his emptiness, that his desire was to fill this hole that he experienced in his soul with love. Because we're all looking for love. Love. We want to know others and be known by them. I find the way that Dr. Larry Crabb frames it very compelling. He wrote a book called The Marriage Builder, and he says that we are all on a quest for two things. We're on a quest for security and significance. Those two things are what we are looking for in all of our relationships. We want to be in a relationship where we are secure, that we can be vulnerable, we don't feel fear, abandonment. In, in parent-child relationships, this is called bonding. I'm sure many parents have had the experience where you go to a parent-teacher conference and the teachers just like gushing about how well-behaved, how quiet, you know, how how your kids sit still, and, and you know they never act out. They're always polite, and you gotta you know kind of clean out your ears because you know they're like a little hellion at home. Let's be honest, they're always pushing your buttons. They're they're the boundaries pushing of just about everything. And and what that would mean, if that's been your experience, that means that you're doing something right as a parent. Because ultimately, the school environment is not secure. The child fears that if they step out of line, they're going to get into trouble. They'll be jettisoned by the teacher. But at home, there is security. They know they can push push your buttons and you're not going to abandon them. We want to know in our relationships that we are secure. But Dr. Crabb also says that significance is important. We don't only want to exist in a safe space where we know we won't be abandoned. We also want people to validate our significance, validate our worth. We want to know that those we're close to genuinely like us not that they just merely put up with us because they have to, right? We don't want to just be tolerated, we want to be loved. So we go through life looking to have these deep longings for security and significance met in us. I think the most common ways that we try to fill this is searching for romantic relationships. As Aerosmith sang, when we feel spurned and unloved, it creates this hole in our soul and we'll do whatever we can do to try to fill it. I would suggest that this deep longing that we have is a craving to be loved, but that it can only be satisfied, ultimately satisfied by God. When we try to fill our soul, that hole in our soul, with human relationships, we're going to be disappointed. A friend is going to disappoint you. A spouse is going to unintentionally say something hurtful. And even our parents are going to let us down. No one is perfect. Even the best intentioned person will do and say things that might cause us grief, might cause us to doubt our value and worth. The great 17th century mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal put it eloquently. He said, and I quote, What else does this craving and this helplessness, proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace, right? Think about that hole in my soul that Erasmus sang about. This, Pascal says, he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help him since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. What Blaise Pascal is saying is that there is this chasm within us. There's this monstrous hole in our soul that we try to fill with anything that might make us feel good about ourselves. But ultimately, that void is too big, and those objects that we're trying to Stuff in there are too small to put a dent in it. Pascal argues that the only being that can satisfy us is an infinite being, namely God himself. The quote is sometimes paraphrased to describe this, quote, "God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person." You may have heard that. That's kind of a paraphrase of what he said, that we've got this God-shaped void in us. We crave the knowledge that we are loved, that someone views us as valuable. We want to have a place where we can rest in that security and significance in those relationships. Friends, that knowledge can only come ultimately from God himself. The Apostle John in his first letter identifies love as one of, if not the primary characteristic of God. This is 1 John 4, uh, 7 through 8. And John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Now, we don't want to get this backwards. Too often we make an idol of love and make love is God, but that's not what it says, that God is love. A few verses later, John continues. He says, we love because he, God, first loved us. All right? Love originates with God. This craving that we have to be loved is supposed to draw us in closer to that, that ever-loving embrace of God. We see this theme of love, of God's love. And there are so many people that don't view God as a God of love. They've been... Uh, um, uh, kind of conditioned through maybe church experience or relationships to believe that God is is merely a God of wrath. I've argued before that God's wrath is an extension of his love, but that's not the purview of what I'm talking about this morning. But the Scriptures is is filled with the love, just this all-encompassing, overwhelming sense of God's love. Listen to to, uh, Psalm 36 verse 5. It says, your steadfast love, Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds, describing the bigness, the grandeur of that love. The early 20th century hymn, The Love of God, I I love this poetry. I'm not a poet. I I don't usually respond well. There's a lot of poetry I don't get, but sometimes it's like easy enough that it's like, oh yeah, that's beautiful. But listen to this verse. Think about the kind of quantitative element of God's love that they're singing about. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made. Were every stalk on earth a quill, and everyone a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. And if you were to fill the oceans with ink. It would not be enough ink to write the love of God. But this love is is, is not just kind of amorphous. It's not just out there, but it's attached. It's directed towards his people. Zephaniah 3.17 says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Think about how intimate That language is God will quiet us with his love. He will exalt over us with singing. It's describing God serenading us. What came to my mind, I don't know if this resonates with you, but think of that scene in the movie, Ten Things I Hate About You. In order to display his love to Julia Stiles' character, Heath Ledger Ledger serenades her with this song, Can't Take My Eyes Off You. He's kind of dancing around the school, uh, um, uh, not auditorium, the the school uh, football stadium. He's being accompanied by the marching band. And it's become, you know, if you Google like iconic images of love in movies, I guarantee you that one's going to make the list. I watched the clip on YouTube again to kind of refresh my memory of it, and this is, listen to what the top commentator said. You know, it's like crowdsourced, they're voted on, so a lot of people agreed with this one or liked this one. And it said, quote, if a guy like Heath Ledger did something like that for me, I would straight up marry him then and there. That expression of love that, that the, the viewer is witnessing draws her to respond to say, oh, this is an object. This, I am the object of this person's affection. I want to make them the object of my affection. And so thinking about that, through that lens, how ought we to respond that God is the one rejoicing over us with singing? Here's another one, Isaiah 54, verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast, this is God speaking, my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Mountains don't just get up and disappear very often. They're considered an immovable part of creation, but even if those towering crags were here today and gone tomorrow, we could still take it to the bank. God's love would be with us. It would not depart. Now, we can read passages like this on sheets of paper in our Bibles all day long, but I think it's another thing to experience this in our day-to-day lives, especially when our lives are so often filled with heartbreak. It might be difficult to bridge that gap between the theoretical, between what we read, and what our experiences tell us. And so as we are thinking about, as we're contemplating the season of Advent, the season of waiting for Christmas, we can be reminded of this love that God has for us. Because the manger gives us a glimpse of the lengths that God would go through in order to display His love for us, Philippians two, Paul talks about the, the humility of Jesus Christ, that right that Jesus put aside his divine privilege, that he took on human flesh, eventually dying a horrific death before being raised to life again. And so as we s- prepare for Christmas, we might sing songs like "Silent night" or." Songs like Away in a Manger, which are these gentle ballads describing the picturesque, you know, the sentimental um, elements of the Christmas story. But from the moment that Jesus took on human flesh, he began to endure suffering. His suffering didn't begin while he was being whipped, while he was being beaten, nailed to the cross. Jesus suffered when he experienced hunger and thirst, as an infant. As he was circumcised, sure not a real comfortable feeling. As he fell down and skinned his knee while playing as a kid when he accidentally, you know, whacked his hand as he w- with his hammer and chisel as he's, you know, uh, apprenticing with his father Joseph. God stepped down from a place that was devoid of suffering and into our world where he experienced almost constant suffering. Jesus Christ was the only human being to exist without sin, but that does not mean that he was not tempted. Some of the greatest suffering that Jesus would have experienced was when Satan was tempting him in the wilderness. Now, you know, we might read these passages like this in our, our Bibles and just, you know, experience that encounter as automatic. Like, of course Jesus wasn't going to sin. But C.S. Lewis reminds us that suffering in temptation is actually amplified by resisting it. He says, quote, a silly idea is current that good people don't know what temptation means. He says, this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A person who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And so when we feel drawn to things, when we d- feel drawn into temptation or we want to fill our, that hole in our soul with all kinds of other objects, to resist is to, to join in the suffering that Jesus en- encountered. That manger gives us a glimpse of the love of God that he was willing to take on suffering in order to demonstrate his great love for us. Because as we know, the manger is just the beginning of the story. The baby that was born and the manger was destined to die upon the cross. Paul says this in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showcased his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is demonstrated in his sacrificial, atoning death on our behalf, while we were still broken, while we were still rebellious, while we were still in our sin. Put another way, I cited 1 John chapter 4 earlier, you know, the passage that says that God is love, but it continues, 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that's a really fancy kind of theological word. But it describes, what it means is it describes an offering that is meant to appease or satisfy an angry or offended party. We had rebelled against God. We had pushed him away. And God, even though he was the one, he was the offended party, he took it upon himself, the consequences of that offense, because of his deep love for us. Right? Christmas tells the story of God taking on human flesh in order to bring humanity back to its senses, not in a, like, I told you so sort of condescending way, right? not in a, if you want something done, you've got to do it yourself, you know, resentful or begrudging sort of way. Jesus took on human flesh because we were helpless Without him, right? God took pity on us and because of his great love for us, decided to do something about it. Got one more passage for you Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. Right? God's plan was to take those of us who had wandered far away. Not only provide salvation, you know, give us eternal life, John 3, 16. But that would have been enough, but he goes beyond just bringing salvation, giving us life, and brings us into his family. He adopts us. Right? The love of God is not content for us to remain as a stranger to him, but befriends us and writes us into his will. Making us heirs. So, for those of us who crave to be loved, this should be good news for us. Jesus Christ is steadfast in his devotion towards us. And with the joy that was set before him, he sacrificed himself on our behalf. If that doesn't speak words of joy, To those deep desires of security and significance that we long for. I don't know what does. We belong with Jesus. We can be secure in Him. He has validated our worth. Now, this doesn't mean that our quest for human belonging no longer matters. It just means that it ought to be secondary to the love that we experience with God. That all other loves, even our sense of identity, should flow out of the declarations the value that God has proclaimed over us, right? We are all worthy of love, full stop, right? We might go through seasons where, we, where our experiences try to tell us otherwise, but we hold fast to the truth that God has confirmed. Now, if we keep all this in mind, I wanna give us just a few things to, to take home with us, a few things to reflect on or to think through this week. And, and first, I hope that this can be a boon to our self esteem. Okay? Right now, you are loved. That love is a gift, it's not a result of works. God's love is not conditional upon what we bring to the table by what we're able to do. God loves us not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. That is kind of Christianity 101. Our identity, our worth comes out of what Jesus has done for us. But I don't think we can be content to just stop and dwell there. God loves us, so what are we going to do about it? I think that kind of love elicits a response. I mean, ima- imagine this scenario for a moment. Right? Sarah, my wife, wants to demonstrate her love for me, and so she plans. She puts a time together for us to go out. She arranges childcare for our kids, makes a reservation at my favorite restaurant. We share an activity that I love. How would she feel if in light of all of that that she did for me that I responded with like an off-the-cuff reply, like, you know, like, thanks or something. This was kind of nice. Or I acted like I was owed it, right? Like, I'm such a great husband, and so, you know, I deserve what you're giving to me right now, Sarah she'd be rightfully ticked off at me. She'd feel unappreciated, maybe taken advantage of, be like, who's this joker? God's love has gone through, or God himself has gone through great lengths to demonstrate his love, to demonstrate his appreciation for us, and our response to God should be to reciprocate it. We don't appreciate the magnitude of God's gift when we offer haphazard platitudes. Thanks, God. Thanks for saving me. Or we say, you know, like, thanks for saving me for my sins, but then, you know, tomorrow I just go right back to that that disgusting well. What does that communicate to God? God doesn't force us to love Him in return. We're not robots, we haven't been programmed to respond in a formulaic way. God has given us the freedom to reject Him, to rebuff His showcases of attention and affection. But why would you want to? Right? If you were given the choice at dinner of eating, you know, tender gourmet breast of chicken in a white wine sauce, or fresh out of the package spam, what are you going to take? Why would you ever? Why would anyone ever choose the spam? right? But we do this regularly in our spiritual lives. We gorge ourselves on fake meat. C.S. Lewis, I like C.S. Lewis, I quote him a lot. He said it best, his essay, Weight of Glory, he says, quote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, right? Think about those things that we try to fill that hole in our soul with. He continues, when infinite joy is offered us, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, a vacation, all-expense-paid vacation. He says, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, I don't want you to be content with spam and mud pies, right? Spiritual spam and mud pies. I don't know, maybe you really like spam. You can eat that literal spam, but spiritual spam, we're going to say, is not good. Don't be content with it, right? Respond in love with just a fraction of the love that God has shown to us. He deserves it, and I would argue we are better for it. Last point I want to make. When our love tank is filled by God, we are free to love others. Remember 1 John, right? We love because he first loved us. But when we love others, we need to keep in mind the cost. Love is not always free. Sometimes there is high cost to love. Love was sacrificial. Jesus humbled himself. He suffered, he gave, and he bled, and he died. Now, when you think about the ways in which you give love to others, whether that be God or your peers, friends, family, does it carry some of those same Characteristics. I'm not saying you gotta go and, you know, have yourself, you know, put yourself in the line of fire immediately as you walk out of this place, but there's a lot to, to to sacrificing of love, of humbling ourselves, putting our needs beneath perhaps the needs of a spouse or child or a friend. When you love your spouse, are you giving selflessly? Maybe you're joining in an activity that he or she likes but isn't your favorite. You're not doing it so that you can get joy out of it, but so that the object of your desire finds his or her joy. When you parent, do you give your kids your full presence, your full attention? Or do you just give, I know this is something I'm guilty of, I just give them a distracted version of myself while I scan through social media on my phone? When you're with your friends, do you give providing services to them when they need it, or are you just like a social parasite? Right, feeding off the generosity of others, God has demonstrated His love towards us, and He has Jesus displayed the sacrificial love that we ought to model. And you know what? We're not going to get it right all the time. In fact, you're probably going to get it wrong more often than you get it right. But it's something I want us to consider this week. And know, know that there's forgiveness with Jesus. I, I often, I often tell people that you know we, too often we're trying to fill a to-do list. Check this, did this, loved well, was present with my kids, whatever. As if that's, you know, my scorecard for the day. But we we don't, friends, we don't have scorecards. Our score, or if we have scorecards, it's already been fully filled out by the work of Jesus. Again, that doesn't mean you just don't try, but there's grace in the times that we err, the times we make mistakes right? You know, as John 3.16 states, for God so loved the world that he gave. Love yielded generosity. And I hope that our love also would breed that type of generosity that can be transformative to our families, our friend groups, our communities, even ourselves. So here's a a couple of questions, and I'll post these on Facebook and uh, the website this week to think about. Nope, that is not it. So that's our liturgical prayer. Let's try this again. All right, so right now, do you feel worthy of love? Because I know I talk to a lot of people who feel like because of past mistakes or because of, you know, whatever it might be, I don't feel worthy of love. I don't deserve love. If not, what is that biggest obstacle to experiencing that type of fulfillment? What's keeping you from feeling, especially whenever it comes to God? right? Because God loves us, and there's too many people I've encountered who just like try to keep God at arm's length. God, you don't know what I've done. If you knew, you wouldn't love me. Well, he knows. He knows everything, and he still loves you. So thinking about that. Second is, where do you see God's love in the nativity story? Taking this kind of broad picture of God's love and connecting it to the manger, connecting it to the birth of Jesus. Where do you see those connection points? And lastly, kind of what have you done about it? how have you demonstrated your love to God this week? Let me pray, and then we'll close with one more song. Lord, as we contemplate your love, may we not be beholden to all of these things that distract us, There are some great examples of earthly love here that we can share with friends, family, communities, whatever it might be, God. But may none of those things take the primary driver's seat in our relationship with you. Lord, may our identity flow out of this love that you have demonstrated to us, God, that Jesus, while you died, it says that through the joy set before you, you endured the cross, scorning its shame. Lord, that you have proclaimed worth upon us regardless of what we feel. Let us know that you believe us to be worthy. You've displayed our worth. God, thank you for all that you've done and the ways that you've shown that love. May we be a repository for it and then uh, receiving that love and giving it out of the overflow to others as well. Guide us in your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.